Hello, I'm here with Michael Childs. Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Education podcast. Michael, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's really good to be back. Um, doesn't yeah. seem that long ago since um, I was on the on the podcast talking about feedback. Yes, and if listeners do want to listen to that, we'll share the link. Um, the episode where you spoke with Jamie from Evidence-Based Education about feedback, I really enjoyed that. Uh, but today we've got a different theme. We're focusing on questioning, just like feedback is incredibly important and something that you've done a lot of work with. Um, but just to start off, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your current role and what you do? And I know, obviously, you've written a lot of books, so feel free to just briefly summarise um, everything that you're doing in education at the moment. Yeah, so exciting, really exciting couple of years, but working working in school in the Northwest and um, assistant principal there looking after key stage four in particular and working with year 11 and then got the exciting role of aspects of teaching and learning and aspects of um, revision and assessment so quite exciting really and then yeah working with with schools um, most recent work with a school in in Singapore that was that was exciting and um, had the opportunity to work with them and support them with their feedback practices and and then most recently wrote a book with David Goodwin on for ECTs, which um, has, has come out um, last month. And yeah, so it's been it's been an interesting um, couple of years. And obviously the the tour of research yet, um, different yeah. places and involvement in those. Well, that's why I met you and David Goodwin. We were in an airport uh, waiting for our flight that had a few dramas along the way. Uh, but before we get to questioning, I did want to ask uh, about your book with David because it's brilliant. Uh, it's really impressive. I don't think there's a book out there like it. Um, so just for our listeners, well, actually, before I ask you to describe the book, can you tell me, just because I'm interested, how did the collaboration with you and David come about? Yeah, I mean, David and I have, have probably had had conversations mainly from meeting at research ed really and, and discussing and then we built that sort of uh friendship and i think we just both decided there was something there where ects are looking for in terms of that starting point like being able to have something that was to hand and they could reference in the assignments that they might be doing or when they're working with their mentor on a particular strategy and there's lots we know that there's lots of books out there for education now it's um it's quite a it's quite an expansive field of, of books and, and it's great to have lots of expertise of practicing teachers and and teachers that um have, have moved on and, and working with schools it's great to have such a a broad market and as we just thought it'd be great to have a book that brought all those different strategies together and the research in digestible chunks for, for ECTs. Yeah well this book is year one is there plans for year two? <laughs> I think um, I think we, although we called it year one and and this was um, I only realized that when we discussed it David came up with a, with the, the main heading he thought let's call it year one and I came up with a subtitle and, and then he revealed to me actually it's linked to his um, Marvel obsession so uh, <laughs> um I think it could uh, to be honest it can be used further afield and beyond the year one and with the ECT framework ECT ones and ECT twos and I suppose it could be a, a good refresher for anyone who's who's um who's teaching but I think there's there's in the pipeline of we're thinking about a workbook and and that could be something that 
would go alongside it really to help um, ECTs to get their ideas down when they're grappling with a strategy maybe on classroom systems or when they're thinking about assessment or professional development so that's something we're we're considering for, for the future. Well something that you have written about before but now you're really honing in on is questioning. Um, I recently because I'm new to EBE and I've been working my way through the courses um, and there's a fantastic online course about questioning and it's really good and it got me thinking because obviously your book is coming out about questioning considering how important questioning is for teachers every teacher regardless of key stage and subject will ask questions every lesson every day yet this isn't something that is talked about or that there is as much CPD out there or books um, and, and that's why I really do welcome your book but but why do you think that is why do you think there's been a lack of attention and focus on questioning considering how important questioning actually is yeah I think in the past I, think, I was thinking of trends that have happened in education I think there's been a lot of focus on assessment um, and how we assess students and in particular with the GCSE reforms in 2018 and, and the, the discussions around SATs at um, Key Stage 2. There's been a lot of discussion around assessment and what that looks like and getting that right. And then from that, how do we give feedback? And I think that just naturally fell into the next sort of wave of focus in schools and getting feedback right in particular because of the, the associated workload that came with it. And... I suppose that's kind of led to questioning sort of not necessarily being sort of forgotten about, but just not really focused on it. And this has probably been the most challenging book that I've written so far and taking me the longest, I would say. And um, I think that's because it's it's quite it's quite difficult to to it's, I, feel, I think it's quite abstract in terms of a pedagogy and trying to make it co- concrete. It's it's. It's quite challenging so I think maybe that could be a reason for it or maybe we just think as practitioners that um, asking questions is easy it's easy to ask a question why do we need to focus on it? I agree with you because early in my career I had a lesson observation by a line manager gave me really good feedback about questioning I was only using hands-up approaches and the same three students were answering each time And I was alternating between the three of them. And I never really thought that much about it. And it was very obvious after the observer said that to me. But it was just something that I assumed that I just do naturally and and that I did well. And, And then actually building on after that lesson observation, I then went to watch another teacher with a focus on watching them with their questioning but I, th- I think you're absolutely right. The fact that we do it day in, day out, it feels so natural to us. And as you said, trends and other priorities uh, and so on. And that's really interesting that you say that about this, this book being quite a tricky one, because uh, there are there are challenges to it and, and complexities. Um, but moving on, so at the moment, um, cold calling and mini whiteboards seem to be really popular on Twitter and discussions, basically questioning approaches that are no hands up that involve all learners in the classroom and for any of our listeners not familiar cold calling teach like a champion technique is asking students a question without their hands up 
But do you think, despite that emphasis, that there is still a place with in the classroom for a hands-up approach to questioning? I think so. And I think um, reading some of the research around, in particular, participation in the classroom and, and the fact factors that affect whether students want to participate, I think sometimes we we need to acknowledge that as practitioners. And I think I watched a teacher last week, actually, I observed a teacher last week and um, her focus was on questioning. And uh, that was something that she's working with uh, with me on. And I watched her in interchange a, a series of strategies and a questioning um, sort of like um, session of the, of the lesson where she used a mixture of cold call, hands up. Um, and it was fascinating to watch because the way that she did it was so clever that she flipped the two interchangeably throughout that questioning discussion um, period and sequenced her questions at the same time. But I think she was only able to do that because of the culture that's in the classroom. And I think because she's built that culture over the last sort of six weeks as she's had this particular group, she's been able to do that. And I think that's important to acknowledge because I think sometimes we might go straight into cold calling because like you say, it's it's something that's out there and it's it's quite well known now as a strategy, but actually it could do the opposite of of um, increasing anxiety with pupils and, and them not wanting to, to contribute. And I think, especially for new teachers, if you went straight into using cold calling right from the start, from the first week, you might find actually it has a negative impact on learning potentially. That's interesting. I, with cold calling, I really struggled with it. Um, although I persevered with it. And as a secondary teacher like yourself, those first few weeks when you've got so many names to learn, I would have um, students write their name on a sticker that would help me use their name when cold calling to help me learn their name, to make it a bit more personal. But that, I think, is a strategy that teachers struggle with, was hands up seems to be the the go-to strategy. But like you said, a, a good idea is basically there's a, there's a place for them both. Absolutely. And I've got eight teaching groups at the minute. So trying to remember all the, I think I've got, I think I must teach about 250 students, 300 students at the minute and trying to remember all those names over the last six weeks. So I've, I've definitely mixed my questioning and, and at the start didn't, only if I knew the students quite well, but I find it quite interesting as well because some students are only starting to participate now and still a little bit shy and, I, and I've acknowledged that and, and taken my time with them. But uh, I always find hands up quite interesting because sometimes I'll go for hands up and actually give them a bit of time. And I might say, I want to see a few more hands before, before I go to someone. And it's quite interesting that then some students do start to put their hands up as well. And you start to get quite a lot of students put their hands up. And then even if some don't, I might go to the ones that haven't got the hands up because actually I'm wondering then I can see straight away. If, if I've got 20 hands up out of 24, then I know those 20 feel they know an answer. But then I know straight away four that don't. But if I cold call, sometimes I can't tell that. I, I, it's difficult, isn't it? So I think, um, like you say, I think a mix of different strategies is important when it comes to questioning. Would you also say it depends on the purpose? So, for example, if you're doing a retrieval task, you might do the mini whiteboards because it involves everyone. But if it was more discussion-based, 
asking for opinions and ideas that that would be more appropriate for hands up so that the purpose is important yeah i think so definitely and um i think that's important as well like you say because you can use mini whiteboards for a quick retrieval and you can quickly see if there's a misconception maybe by a hinge question that you're using for the retrieval practice or an open question that you might have and you can see that but when you want a discussion and build a discussion i found using a different approach a bit more powerful and sequencing the questions as well which is what i saw that that, that, that colleague do really really well so yeah absolutely and i think i was reading your yours and and dylan's blog about um think pair share and i think combining that as well really really powerful because sometimes it could be that they just need that little bit of an opportunity to bring something back to the forefront of their of their working memory so this week it was i was teaching about westernization and it's quite a difficult term and i just said before i did anything before we introduced it i said right just with the person next to you 30 seconds just have a chat what do you know about westernization what do you think about the term and that had let them have that discussion before i asked any questions because i think that also is is um is important yeah and i'm sure you'll agree with me on this but actually this is something that you've just reminded me of <clears throat> something i saw on twitter that was about uh, retrieval practice where someone was trying to enforce that the answers must always be written and i disagreed with that because of early years we'll have verbal uh, retrieval mfl practical subjects so whilst obviously there is value and importance to the written answers the, the verbal responses are really important aren't they you do you agree yeah, definitely. I do a, a, such a mix, such a mix. And that think pair share is so powerful like with a, a verbal retrieval there. And it's it could. Yeah, it it can be anything. And, and I think that, like you say, that's really important to acknowledge that depends on the context. But yeah, written, verbal. Yeah, really, really important. And equally, we use we do retrieval through um digital software as well which yeah. again is another another way in which to retrieve it's um and that could be things like Seneca learning really powerful to maybe match things up that's that's an, an act of retrieval isn't it and or maybe even using quizzes where they're not writing anything down but they're choosing an option again and it that's an yeah. act of some form of retrieval as well yeah well, that's great. And you've already touched upon this for my next question, because you said, and I love this about you, Michael, that you're in the classroom, you're breathing this day in, day out. And I know the challenges that come with being in the classroom and writing books. It's it's not easy. Um, but you've already said that you, you're taking your time with some students, you're building up relationships. So if, what do we do if we've got those students? Because we'll have some who are very keen to answer. They always want to answer and they're very confident. And that's brilliant. But then we do have those reluctant students who are just really struggling to engage or volunteer answers. Do you have any advice for teachers about those students? Yeah, so actually chapter two is all about fostering that culture. And so there's a whole chapter there about fostering the culture. And I talk about this idea of a, a question lag. So when you, you ask a question, there's there's this invisible lag between your question and the, the child answering the question and often that's that's I, I talk about due to many reasons it could be due to 
they're, they're anxious, the peer pressure, the question might invoke a, an emotional um, trigger for them. Um, they may just not be confident. And I've, in particular, I've got lots of girls at the minute, for whatever reason, who are not very confident at, at answering questions at the moment. And I think that's just the culture of potentially the the fact that they they feel more self-conscious at a particular age and this is um year year 11 girls at the minute and I think that's just their confidence so I think for those it's about finding and there's no I don't think there's a silver bullet to this but it's about finding an opportunity where you can give them that bit of success in answering the question and so I've worked on on different strategies I've got a feeling like I'm, I'm, they'll know the answer for one. So I'll do that. Also, I'll give them more thinking time. So often the idea of no opt-out I think is really important, but at the same time doing it in a in a warm sort of um, encouraging way. So what I'll often do is I might say, oh, I'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, I'll give you a little bit longer to think about it, but I really want to hear your response because I I know you know the answer or I know you've got, you've got something that's that's really important to contribute one of the things I also have written about in here is that idea that what I all what I do all the time every week is I always narrate that anyone who contributes it doesn't matter whether you get it right or wrong and I think that's really important for practitioners to do as well to really narrate that in their classroom to say getting the answer wrong it's all part of learning it's absolutely fine no one's going to laugh at you in here no one's going to judge you um, that's really important so I talk about that as well and I think I think it takes time and and I think that's important to acknowledge as well because classrooms are so dynamic aren't they and and every year group is different every every um, mix of classrooms provide those individual challenges but I think using a few of those strategies can be re- really helpful to improve participation and I'm seeing that and I see it in other lessons as well though and I've talked to practitioners who say oh, I'm struggling to get X to contribute and I said Let, why don't you try a few of these strategies first and see how it goes. I think that in itself saying to a colleague I wish I wish I'd have done that I wish I'd have said to my colleagues I'm struggling with this class or I'm struggling with this student and maybe watch their lesson invite them into my lesson there were all these things that we can do in-house that often I, I haven't done. Um, and when I did go observe another teacher with a focus on question, I took a huge amount away from that, as well as being able to provide feedback. Something that I've also suggested to some teachers is that there's actually there's some great videos on YouTube, Doug Lamov posts of the cold calling. Um, mm. uh, and, and that's a, a great thing to, because it could be quite daunting to ask someone to come into your class, but if we've got the right attitude and culture like you, you've you been talking about, it could be really helpful, can't it? I think so. And I talked about early stages in my career where lots of students would be saying, I don't know, or that non-explanatory response that the research talks about where it's easy for them to say, I don't know, because often it's they do know they just it's laziness. And I, I remember David Adele talking about the whole um, issue around students rather being perceived as being lazy than stupid because they think that um sort of like 
knowledge and and uh, intelligence is fixed whereas we know it isn't and and I talk about how I've experienced where actually some students when I've pushed them in the past have got quite um defensive like and sometimes quite aggressive like no stop asking me I'm, I can't I don't know the answer sir and and it's helped me to realize actually how to switch that and I think experiencing that as well has made me realize that the culture in the classroom is is probably like the backbone to getting that questioning right, the use yeah. of questioning in the classroom right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The relationships as well, knowledge of your students. I think this is brilliant. Now, you wrote case studies for my book and I've written case studies for your books. <laughs> and um, one of those things is about multiple choice questions. Um, because obviously I've written a lot about retrieval practice. I'm a big advocate for multiple choice questions. They could be used for checking for understanding. But I still find that, that some teachers are either reluctant to use them or they think they're too easy. I've also seen lots of red, very badly designed multiple choice questions online. So in terms of multiple choice questions, where do you stand and, and what advice would you offer to teachers? Yeah, I think multiple choice questions can be really powerful. And one of the things that we've done in terms of uh, there's a chapter in the book about diagnostic questioning, using questioning to diagnose where pupils are at. So when we assess at the minute, we we assess two strands. Um, one strand is knowledge and one strand is application of knowledge. And um, assessment of knowledge is is at the minute one of the strands in which we utilize multiple choice questions and designing those multiple choice questions like you say is really challenging and sometimes it, teachers don't want to do it so they, they just don't do it but actually it really tells you what students do and don't know what the misconceptions are and we use quizzes for that actually and and I think quizzes is, is fabulous as a tool to generate a range of question types and multiple choice questions to to ask students um, different different uh, components of their curriculum and really tells you what that class knows and, and doesn't know what you then need to reteach. So, yeah, we've used multiple choice questions one route through diagnostic questions for, for that particular purpose, just to assess knowledge. Do they, do they know the nuts and bolts of the subject? What, where's the gaps? And then we address those gaps and, and reteach them in the classroom. And then also we use them as sort of hinge points questions at different parts of a lesson potentially with many whiteboards or we might use them as a as a retrieval um, or we might use them with our knowledge organizers and this is something actually I'm, I'm just writing a blog about knowledge organizers because I saw something the other week on Twitter saying oh where's knowledge organizers gone they, they turned into a bit of a it was a bit of a fad and they disappeared and actually we we use them all the time and um, it reminded me of Mary's um, statement of live not laminated and our knowledge organisers that lived, they, they live and breathe every every day at home in the classroom and we've used multiple choice questions from the knowledge organisers as well. So I think they're really, really powerful and for me, Reflecting on the journey that we've taken over the last two years with with this approach to assessment and use of questions for it, it's really helped the students to to really understand where their gaps are as well. Because quizzes creates them a little player report, and that's a really powerful self regulation tool, which um, 
that we've also really taken taken advantage of. And I think complete sidestep to it, but I think it's important. Schools trial things and then they just ditch them if they don't work straight away. Now, we've gone on a journey with quizzes for the last two years. And yeah, that is, some things are not quite where we want them to be. There's little things with the multiple choice questions where doesn't necessarily work like we'd want but we're reviewing that and tweaking it and finding out how we can make it as powerful as possible and I think that's important to acknowledge as well yeah I'm a big fan quizzes.com and teleport feature as well isn't it I think this is and this is something David Goodwin has worked on when he with the geography community with retrieval roulettes and collaboration with question design do you think that's something that teachers should do more of in departments and or even as subject communities or year group communities working together to share and design effective questions? Yeah, we, we do it um, within our departments and we think about the best way to ask the question, the best distractors. We did think about something that obviously you talked about with um, Doug in your, your blog about the the I don't know feature yet or I don't know yet feature and we did consider putting that in and it may be something this year that we might do um, in, in terms of the next step of where we're up to just so we could see because we've, we've got a lot of students now that are, that are used to that structure they're quite confident they know that the quizzes is low stakes because we've built that culture with them it's about do you know it? Don't you know it? And then if you don't know, well, this is what we're going to do to help support you. So I think the next step might be now to actually introduce that option because we didn't want to do it straight away last year because we thought they might just choose that as a lazy option, as in like a get out cause rather than trying. So we thought, you know what, let's just delay it a little bit. But now I'm, we're thinking maybe we could do that now. Yeah, well, Doug Lamov, I asked him, what did you think about I don't know yet? Because when Dylan Williams was editing my book, he mentioned about how students could use it as the get out of jail card, opt in for I don't know all the time. Um, so to get around that, I would say you're allowed to pick I don't know yet X amount of times. So you, if you've got 20 questions, you could select it three or five times. And then Doug Lamov said, well, they'll know something. Even if they don't know that question, they'll know something linked to it. And all of a sudden, that final option, I know that, and then you fill it in, becomes actually the hardest option because you're actually physically writing something in contrast to selecting the right answer. Uh, and this is just something I've encountered recently and I thought actually it'd be good to talk to you about. Um, I was I work with lots of different schools with check of understanding and retrieval practice. And I have noticed that some departments across, let's just say, history, they'll be asking the same questions and then others are very honest and they say, well, we sort of do our own thing. We have the scheme of work and the lesson objective, but we write our own quizzes. And one specific department told me that this teacher liked to do mini whiteboard. This one liked to use technology. My advice was, can't you ask the same questions, but you have them on your PowerPoint slide for the mini whiteboard. You have them online in contrast to just going rogue, so to speak, because I, th I think that's where the I think consistency is really important. Do you agree then? Yeah, definitely. So we uh, the quizzes is always designed together that all students when they're doing the diagnostic assessment through those multiple choice 
questions or whatever it might be through the, the option on quizzes, it's all, all, let's say, for example, we do it for year nine or year nine will answer exactly the same questions. Right. What it really allows us to do is it's, it's twofold, really, because we then download all the data and we say, right, OK. All of year nine struggled with X question. So then we start unpicking it. We're saying, right, is it the way we taught it? So do we need to review the curriculum? Is it just it's a misconception? So they're struggling with it. So we just need to reteach it. Or is it something to do with the way we wrote the question? So we, we do all that review. What's been quite interesting, and I don't think we would have realised this unless we'd done this, was that for year... So we teach about eccentricity and geography. So we teach about the, the, the way in which the Earth orbits and that orbit can change from elliptical, elliptical to circular every 100,000 years. This is what Milankovic said. He was, a, he was a, a scientist. It's been a recurring issue for this particular cohort when we, we taught it in year 10 last year, but... But year 11 again this year, it's, it's still an issue because what we what we try and do with these diagnostic assessments is we bring back questions that have been poorly done originally, like a gap. And it's still a recurring issue. Now, I don't think we would have known that if we'd have just all done our own thing. So, yeah, I think it's really important to have that consistency. Where do we do have flexibility, I would say, between practitioners is what we will do is in terms of where we might bring the the retrieval practice back is where we might have class gaps yeah if my class has a gap on a particular component of a curriculum I will use retrieval practice maybe at the start of a lesson or at some point or maybe do um, some form of retrieval practice homework where I'll set a particular section on Seneca for that class because that's yeah. their gap whereas like a colleague might have a different gap in their class so yeah I think consistency is important in terms of asking questions if you're going to use them as an assessment tool but then having that flexibility to be able to be a responsive practitioner if you've got those individual gaps. What's really interesting about what you've just said let's say there was a gap or uh, it's a large percent of the class getting this question wrong in my class in your class, they, they did really well with that. It might be worth me asking you, well, how did you explain it? Or can, mm. can I see you in action when you deliver that explanation? All those sorts of things that you said, it could be really, really powerful and insightful. So I really like that about the, the flexibility where it's appropriate and then the consistency is key. Brilliant. Well, um, Dylan Williams written a lot about questioning with formative assessment. And um, Dylan says... In terms of questioning, this is specifically when he's talking about higher order thinking questions, but he says <clears throat> teachers should plan it, ask it, be quiet. <laughs> and that's obviously about referring to the, the wait time, the think time, and teachers not answering the question th themselves. But I wanted to ask you this about the planning. Try to reflect on, did I specifically plan to ask certain questions or was I just being responsive and did they just come naturally? <laughs> so, so what do you think in terms of that? Should teachers plan the questions that they're going to ask? Obviously, there'll be those questions planned in a multiple choice quiz, but in a lesson and, and verbally, should we plan or should we just aim to just 
be responsive with it? I think it's a bit of both. I think that especially if you're you're new to the, the teaching profession, I think planning is really helpful because I think I remember when I first started teaching, I used to get stuck because I used to be like, oh, I wasn't expecting the student to ask me that question or wasn't expecting that that question would yield such a 30 blank faces because they were like, well, what, what the heck's they're talking about? And I think that's important as well because I was reading some of the research around you can write a really powerful question that you think is great, but actually what you think is a great question might actually be a terrible question because not intentionally, but you it just might be. And, and that's maybe because A, you haven't trialed it on someone or B, you haven't really given it a thought. And actually the question probably is either too difficult so you completely lost, you lose the student straight away because they just don't understand it. Or the question's that obvious that the students are like, well, why ask it in the first place? And I think that's really important as well because I see some teachers asking questions where the students know the answer before they've even asked it or finished asking it. And so there isn't that degree of challenge there. But equally, I see some teachers asking questions and they just completely lose them. Or... They ask questions where they expected a response, but the student didn't give them the response they expected. So then it just froze them. So I think, yeah, I think for many reasons, planning questions is important and would definitely advocate for it. Even I will still do it now because even 15 years into teaching, I think it's important. And maybe I don't always write them down, but I'll think about it when I'm thinking about what I'm teaching. And I think that's because I want us to consider, is that the right question to ask? And are, are the students going to actually understand it before I've even asked it? Well, are you aware of <clears throat> Tom Needham is an English teacher on Twitter and a fantastic blogger. And he's written about scaffolded question design. So the he'll start off with a question. So if the final question that he's, he's asking is for his students to explore Macbeth's paranoia, but I suppose this links with the curse of knowledge where we assume that students understand what paranoia is and in that context. So his first question will be about, do we understand what paranoia is, what it means, what it looks like? And then he'll gradually use all those answers to build up to that point of this is the question that I want to ask. This is the higher order thinking question, the challenging question. And I know you're a really big fan of scaffolded approaches, teaching to the top, also teach mixed ability classes that involve everyone so so basically is is that a really good approach then to scaffold our questions that to order to make it inclusive and make those challenging questions still challenging but more accessible yeah and that colleague i watched last last week did it so well and switched between cold calling and um a bit of think pair share and yeah it was fascinating to watch and and I even said to her when when I gave her some feedback I said did you realize you were doing x y and z and she said no I didn't because what I really like to do when I observe a teacher is actually write down I'm not I'm not watching what's happening when when I'm observing a lesson I'm writing what's happening all the time so I write what the teacher's saying um, because I think it's really powerful and I actually wrote down I have to write fast but I actually wrote down 
her whole question sequence in in a few minutes and, and yeah. shared it back with her and it's so powerful to, but she she did it in such a way like you say that that created a scaffold so that the students who were working at a much much um sort of lower level were able to answer a question and be successful and then the students who were working at a higher level were able to answer the same sort of sort of sequence of those that what the content was but at a much higher level and it 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 was brilliant and it's hard to do it's really hard to do and it takes time to get it right but if you if you can sequence those questions then it really helps to to bring everyone along yeah so I'm a big advocate of it and it's definitely one of the principles that I've I've said would be great for powerful question in the book is sequencing question sequencing well you've mentioned this lesson observation with a colleague and you're a senior leader in a school but it sounds like as a classroom teacher teaching geography that you also took a lot away from this as well that you found it helpful in that sense which again comes back to what we said before about the power of working together collaboratively especially with questioning it's it's so such an easy thing for us to do isn't it yeah, absolutely. I love watching lessons. Love it. I love people coming to watch me. Um, I always say, come on in. I have the door open all the time. Come in, come in, come in, come watch me. Give me some feedback. I think it's brilliant. It's um, it's. I wish all schools were like it. And I've worked in schools where it's not like that. So I do understand where someone walking into your classroom is like alien and you shut the door and don't come in. I'm not interested. And I, feel, I think that's a shame. Because I love what Dylan Williams said about how every teacher can improve. Every teacher can get better no matter where you're up to. And I think, yeah, I wish all schools were like it. I wish that was the, the culture. Because that's the thing. Your book on powerful questioning would be really, really helpful to any teacher at any point in their career, primary, secondary subject, because it's so important. The online course on evidence-based education is fantastic about questioning but with both of them, then the key to the success will be the application and the reflection and, uh, and that process with it. So it's a really important part and there should be this literature and there should be these courses available. But then is how you put it into action in the classroom, isn't it? Yeah, and I've actually, I've not told anyone yet, so this is probably a sneak peek really, but the book does have lots of activities. Because oh. I wanted this to be a, I've not done it with the other book, but I wanted this to be a, book that teachers could use with other teachers or with within their department or cross colleagues so there's lots of activities where it's thought provoking and even creating questions at that moment when they've read something about the hallmarks of writing a good question so I've even got activities where I'm encouraged I want the readers to be encouraged to to well create a question now or I've given a scenario of um this has happened in the classroom and what what would you do next or if this happened to you what would you do next and so yeah but that I wanted to do that this time because like you say it'd be great if that's what teachers take from it using it so my final question is really about the students and students asking questions and I'll share a story with you this is not something that I did in all of my lessons (laughs) wouldn't be possible but we would watch um um, some video clips from the historian Dan Snow about 1066. And I 
had a little picture of this story, Dan Snow, and it said, what would you ask Dan Snow if you, if you could? And uh, most of the questions, though, were questions that had either been answered or I could answer them or... I thought, oh, so I think they know this question, you know, what year was the Battle of Hastings? I'm not going to ask Dan Snow that, am I? But there was one really good question um, about the Battle of Stamford Bridge. It was so good. I sent it to him and he answered it on Twitter and he wrote a, a thread about it. And then I shared that with the class and, oh, such a shame. I wish I could do that more <laughs> as the historian. And, and then I've done that since saying, come on, let's ask, if you could ask a question, any question, what would it be? And one question, and it makes the students think really, really hard. But then the challenge with that is obviously Dan Snow can't answer all these questions <laughs> in class. So that's one strategy, but one I can't use often. Um, so what would you suggest in what, how can we help our students ask, I don't want to say the right questions, but the effective questions, how can we help them when it comes to, to questioning and the questions that they ask us? Yeah, and I, th I think to start off with, we worked on peer conferencing, where actually we're getting them to build their confidence in asking each other questions before they start a task or after they've done a task. And we've given them some scaffolded questions to do that. So it might be like, for example, that we might be getting them to do an application task on something. So we give them a success criteria and we say, right, with the person next to you, couple of minutes just have a chat about what you're going to write and why you're going to write it and so we've built we've started to build that confidence and that's that's something that's been um happening over the last year or so in the school and it's really quite powerful to see the students talking more to each other and asking each other questions we've had to model it but i'd say that's the first possibly the first step is showing them what a good question looks like, how to ask questions. So that's been the first step. And then I think even last week, I, I, I was teaching year sevens. We, we're currently teaching about fantastic places. It's our starting unit in geography. And it's all about looking at the lens of places around the world and considering how fantastic they are, like this concept. And um, one, this one girl, um, Peyton, her name is, she said, so why is Death Valley called Death Valley? And she, it was just, she just had the confidence to ask that question then. And I answered it. And I think that's also important as well, because I think there'll be times in lessons where students will want to ask you a question because they're, they, they've got some sort of trigger from maybe, we weren't talking about Death Valley at that time, but we were talking about um, deserts. And that's why it triggered yeah. her, her memory recall, that, that, that trigger in her schema because she'd been reading about it. And so I would say as well, one of the probably bits of advice is if students ask you questions, I know that sometimes we feel as teachers, that's going to derail the lesson, can't, can't do that. Or we might say, look, not that's not probably not the right question for today we'll come back to it I think actually that could do more harm than good sometimes and then, and it comes from a right place because I've done it so many times because I'm thinking oh, I just I just need to get this done today I can't can't yeah. go down this route this rabbit hole but actually I think when students do that they're doing it for a reason and I think if we want to build their confidence to ask questions we need to acknowledge them when they ask them and and do engage in it because I think 
otherwise we they may not want to so i'd also say that is a good strategy and i think as a school we teach them public speaking and i think that's really important as well yes that's just that's a separate part of the curriculum but feeds into the main curriculum and i think that's teaching them about the power of asking questions as, as young young uh, adults as well well this quite <laughs> you've just inspired me to ask another question and this might be actually helpful especially for early careers teachers but the students often assume that we well we are experts and we are but they might assume that we know everything <laughs> and whilst we know a lot we don't know everything so do you think the best approach if a student asks us a question that we don't know and I this has happened to me where in, especially early in my career where I was a bit too embarrassed to say I don't know that because I, there's this expectation I should know and actually it's just been a case of this was especially when I was a Welsh teacher Welsh isn't my specialism and somebody asked me what the word for for pancake was in Welsh and it was one of those things you know that was in my long-term memory but I couldn't actually recall it at that precise point it's Krempog for anyone listening and I just I, I don't know. I did something like spun it around and said, well, there's a dictionary. Why don't you find out for yourself and then check with me? And then they said, oh, Krempog. And I went, oh, correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't sure how to deal with that. So what when we get asked a question that we don't know, what what do you, how should we respond? Yeah, I wrote about that in the book. Exactly. Oh, fab. <laughs> I felt it as well. And it's happened to me. But I think honesty is important because that's that vulnerability as a teacher and, and I think sometimes as teachers we don't want to be vulnerable but actually I mean geography so vast and like yeah. history so vast and, and yeah. sometimes you just don't know some students will ask you very niche questions yeah <laughs> and it's just like you, you just might not know and and I'll, I'll say oh I, I'm I'm not too sure actually I think it might be this but I'm going to, I'll go away. It's a good question. I'll go away and have a look and I'll, we'll come back to it next lesson because I think that's really, it's really important question that you asked. And I think that that's how I've dealt with it, where I acknowledge the question. I've acknowledged that I'm not hundred percent certain because I think sometimes if you don't, you could lose credibility if you try to just make up an answer or, or like yeah, I mean, sometimes <laughs> that strategy that you did still, it still works. And sometimes I've done that actually. Yeah. But yeah, I think that comes with confidence as a teacher. So like you say, I couldn't do that at the start of my career, but I'm now more open to doing that. And I think I think that's important because we don't know everything as teachers. Classic for, for me is um, students think the geography teachers know every, every flag, every capital city or everything else. But I didn't study that in my degree. I, I know yeah. this, that's just general knowledge. So... I do acknowledge that. No, I don't know every flag potentially, but I'm willing to learn. And and so, yeah, I think it's, I think that that comes with confidence. Oh, I'm really looking forward to reading that that section in your book, actually, um, because I've been teaching a long time like you, but this is still something that I'm working on and reflecting on and, and keen to improve. So the book is finished and the publication date, watch this space. So for our listeners, they probably already do 
follow you on Twitter, but can you just tell them, um, tell them about the books that you've already got if they're interested and where they can follow you? Yeah, so I suppose it's it's sort of gone on a, a theme with the books, really. Yeah. Obviously, we started with the craft of assessment, of which questioning was in there, like a section of questioning. We then went to focus on the the F and T, which is all about the feedback, and uh, and now we're focusing on um, questioning, which is linked really heavily into that front-loaded part of craft, all about how you condense knowledge in the classroom, how you get students to reflect, and then how you assess. So it all links really, really well. So yeah, so the books uh, that I've written so far with with John Cat, you can get them from John Cat, or you can get them from Amazon. Um, and then this one is is different. It's with Crowner, so it's um it's a different publisher, and it and it feels different. And I'm hoping that um by next April, when um, Research Ed Warrington re um starts again and and is is back, that there'll be a powerful questioning book on the store with Crownhouse that people will be able to to have a read if if they so wish to do so. But um but yeah, it's exciting and. It's the probably, like I say, the most difficult book I've written, but I think I'm into, um, I think I've read about 60 or 70 research articles, which it, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's been interesting. Well, it's a bit questioning, like you said, it's in your books and it's been chapters in other books and mentioned in my book, but not specifically this focus on it with the, the evidence and the application and, and obviously all this this great advice. So are you at M Childs on Twitter or is there that's M, M underscore Childs, isn't it? At M, M underscore Childs. Right. We'll make sure everyone who's listening to go and follow you and see all your, your tweets. You give loads of great advice uh, on there. And thank you so much for giving up your time today to talk again to us here at Evidence-Based Education. No, it's been brilliant. Uh, loved it. It's good to chat, Kate, as always. And um, yeah, it's. Um, I hope people enjoy it, whether they're listening to it while they're driving to work or back from work or running or whatever it might be. So I hope it's given a bit of a glimpse and an insight into to our thoughts on, on questioning. Thank you.